0: Grief can be lonely and isolating, especially for those experiencing pregnancy and infant loss. At times, it may even feel as if the sorrow might consume you. Welcome to the Birthies Loss Support Podcast. Join me, your host, Michelle Smith, as I hold a much-needed space for grief, remembrance, and the journey of healing. Through conversations with grief and trauma experts, the sharing of stories of loss and love, as well as guided meditations. Hello and welcome. I'm so grateful that you are here. As I record this introduction for this episode so that it can air here in a few hours. I've just gotten home from the airport. I flew to Texas to be with my brother, my sister in law, and my nieces. And I went to visit because my sister in law has terminal breast cancer. And she opted to go into hospice care a couple weeks ago. And as I was spending time with her, I wanted to capture and save her story and the sound of her voice for our family, for her children, for her grandchildren. She's always strived to bring humor and comfort and inspiration to others. Throughout her many year-long journey with cancer, she's incredibly resilient, and her ability to maintain such a positive outlook throughout this journey is really quite inspirational. And as I mentioned in the first episode of this podcast, the focus is on baby loss, but I also wanted to bring in occasional episodes that spoke about other aspects of grief and loss. And I'm so grateful that my sister-in-law, Vicki, was gracious enough to share her story and to provide the perspective of someone that's dying because so often the focus is on providing grief support for those that have lost a loved one. As we recorded this, we shared a set of earbuds with a microphone. It was kind of a fun way to record the podcast, and it's created some really special memories. Welcome Vicki to the podcast. I'm so grateful to have you here with me today.
1: Thank you, Michelle. It's my honor to be here. Thank you.
0: I feel so honored to have you here so that we can discuss just what it's like to have this experience of cancer, the experience of knowing that you're dying and being a mother and a grandmother and how you sort through all of that. But let's start at the beginning, when you were first diagnosed. So I was first
1: diagnosed when I was active duty in the United States Air Force. We had just transferred to Osan Air Base in South Korea. It was an accompanied tour with my family, and we were supposed to be there for two years. We arrived in July of 2005. In November of 2005, I felt a lump in my right breast. And I deliberated whether or not I should go see the doctor. Because at first I thought, you know, I have no family history of cancer. They say that we get lumps and bumps and that it's normal. My mom had a lump when I was younger and it was benign. So I thought well, I I feel ridiculous wasting the doctor's time. But I decided that it was in the best interest of my husband and my two small children. My daughters were 6 and 8. And so I had to wait a week to make my appointment because we were in the middle of a military training exercise and Of course, in the drawer of my desk at the command center was a Reader's Digest with an article about breast cancer on the cover. That's an omen. Anyway, when I went to my doctor, she felt my lump and immediately sent me to general surgery to get it looked at. She had me do an ultrasound at the base, And she wanted me to get a mammogram, and the mammogram machine at the Army base in Seoul, Korea, it was broken down. So I had to go to a Korean hospital in Aju. And, of course, they provided me with a translator. And so I got my mammogram, I got my ultrasound, and the ultrasound technician kind of made a face. I don't know if it was just my imagination or if she really did. I told the department head, because I worked with all of these people where I was stationed, I told the department head, I said, you know, I, I know the results are probably going to be negative because I don't have a family history of breast cancer. And he said, most of the instances of breast cancer, you'd be surprised how many don't have a family history. And I kind of felt like he was telling me, giving me a message, but I was like, "Nah, it still can't be. Then I went to general surgery, and because the surgeon could feel the lump, she did what they called a needle biopsy. It's a huge needle, at least it looked huge to me. And she inserted the needle into the lump and extracted some fluid from the lump. And it was very cloudy, had a lot of gunk in it. And, of course, me being the person that I am, I had done some research beforehand on the computer and had read that if it's gunky and yucky, then it's cancer. If it's clear, it's not. So I was kind of prepared for what was going to happen next. About a week later, I got a call from the general surgeon's office saying that the doctor wanted to see me to discuss the results and that I should bring my husband with me. And so I called my husband and I said, I don't know what's going on, but I don't think it's good because she wants me to bring you to the appointment to discuss my lab results. And sure enough, it was breast cancer. Had a lumpectomy, and then Osan Air Base decided that, you know what, we needed you for a two year mission, and you're going to be out a long time getting treatment, so we need to replace you and we need to send you back stateside. So I ended up at Wilford Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, at Lackland Air Force Base, and had a Bilateral mastectomy. Basically, the surgeon there said that, of course, she did her own set of tests too. She did another ultrasound and and another mammogram, and she said that the amount of cancer that was on my right side was so extensive that she recommended that we remove my left breast as well. So I had what they call a modified radical mastectomy. On the right side, where they removed everything but the muscle in your chest. Then on the left side, they did a simple mastectomy. So basically, they just removed all the fat, but left the other part, you know, they left the chest wall and stuff like that intact. Then at the same time that I got my mastectomy, the plastic surgeon was ready to reconstruct me because I was adamant I didn't want to go through another surgery. So I did what they call a tram flap, with a bilateral, unpediculed tram flap. And what they did was they took my rectus abdominis and transverse abdominis muscles from my stomach and pulled them up and turned them into boobs and they said that I had more stitches than anybody in the cardiac wing that day. So trying to recover from that was very difficult because they had to pull and stretch so much skin that I had to walk at like a 45-degree angle. I couldn't stand up straight. And it took a few weeks for me to be able to stand up straight And saw the plastic surgeon again, and he said everything was going well. One of the biggest fears that my husband and I had was the unknown. In Korea, we were scared to death because we just didn't know what stage cancer I had. We didn't know if I was going to live or die. And like I said, my daughters were only six and eight. When we got to Lackland Air Force Base, you know, after all the surgery and everything, we found out that I was stage three cancer. And they said they got everything. I went through several months of chemotherapy, followed by eight weeks of radiation. Then, of course, a year of this medication called Herceptin which up until five years before then, they didn't even have this medication. And basically what it does is there's a a protein in your body called HER2. I'm not really sure what that stands for, but apparently the body doesn't produce that protein correctly. And so there's probably some genetic flaw that causes that. And this medication helps to correct that protein so that, and what this protein does is when it doesn't operate properly, it can make your cancer grow faster. So they gave me a year of that medication, and then they said I was cured pretty much. And, of course, my attitude was back then, Oh, yeah, breast cancer's like 99% curable. I'm good to go. Even though they tell me it might come back, you know, I'm good to go. It's not going to happen to me. And 12 years later, um, it was kind of a blessing and kind of a shocker. It came back with a vengeance. But the blessing was that my daughters were now adults. They weren't small children anymore. So I got all those years. And the other blessing was that my oldest daughter blessed me with a granddaughter, which was what I always wanted. She was our little surprise. She wasn't expected, but she was certainly welcomed. And that was my blessing that I got to see my grandchild be born. The grief part of it was that now, you know, my husband, he tells me I'm the love of his life, and he's the love of my life, and our, you know, time together was going to be cut short because this time the diagnosis was stage 4 terminal breast cancer. I found out that I had terminal Breast cancer in January of 2018. And by July 2018, they said I had about six months to live. And then we found this great medication called Olaparib. And it gave me another, like, three to four years. And then the cancer just started spreading everywhere. My bones were snapping like twigs. It didn't take much to break them. I have cancer in my mediastinum, in the pericardium of my heart, uh, in my lungs, in my liver, in my sternum. My sternum is cracked. Now, how do you crack a sternum? You know, I'm not a football player where a football's going to whack me in the chest, but... And... I also am severely anemic. And because of that, in all of 2021, I was getting a blood transfusion or several blood transfusions about every month. I was in the hospital for about a week. And in 2022, when I had to go for this last break in my leg, I had to get seven blood transfusions. And I made the hardest decision of my life. I always thought that going into hospice was giving up. I thought I had to have a longer life, the quantity of life, just spend with my family. What I didn't realize is that I also needed to think of myself and the quality of life. So after talking with my oncologists and after talking with the hospice folks, I made the decision, and of course my husband and I both made the decision, that I should go on hospice. And it was the best decision I made because I get to spend all my time with my family Hospice makes sure that I have everything that I need. I get well taken care of. They provided me with a wheelchair that's small enough to go around the house. They provided me with a hospital bed and everything else we needed. And it's been a godsend. Of course, that doesn't diminish the fact that my husband is still grieving. Because we don't know when I'm going to go. They're thinking about six months, but you just never know. Some people can live years on hospice. I think that there's a lot of support for the person who's dying. Family is the caregiver. You know, hospice helps take some of the pressure off the family. They're a caregiver. But who's a caregiver for the caregiver? I don't know. What's going to happen? You know, I tried to make sure that everything, all my legal documents were in order for my husband. We met with the funeral home. We got everything taken care of when I was first diagnosed with stage four. And hospice will also help him with a lot of that paperwork. And contacting various agencies and organizations. The funeral home also Does a lot of the legwork. And I even made a checklist for my husband with phone numbers, account numbers and stuff like that so that he has that in his possession so that when I pass, it'll help make it easier for him to do that. But it still won't take away his grief. And I think a lot of the grief that people feel, they suppress it. And when the person you love passes away, that grief comes through. Finally, there's that acceptance that, oh my goodness, it's finally happened. What am I going to do? And, you know, they move on and things get better over time. But there will always be those little reminders, uh, maybe a song, maybe a favorite TV show, So we just need to be mindful of the caregivers and give them a lot of support, which is what I'm trying to do for my husband and my two girls. We all live together in the same house. So I get to see my granddaughter every day, which is a real blessing. And she is the best medicine in the whole wide world. Just watching her laugh makes me feel better. So, Michelle, do you have any questions for me?
0: I'm curious, if you don't mind sharing, Like, what are some of the things, as someone that's had cancer for years, that maybe people do or say that's helpful, and maybe what's not so helpful, and what might be your thoughts or maybe some... Advice: If you have a friend that has cancer or has someone that is in the process of dying, what advice do you have? Does that make sense? So I'm
1: not easily offended. And I know that a lot of people, even if they say the wrong thing, they're really trying hard because they're uncomfortable they don't know what to say they don't want to say the wrong thing and sometimes what they mean to say comes out in a way that maybe could be said better i know a lot of my friends on the internet who have had cancer one of the things that bothered them was when people would come to them and say oh when's your treatment going to be over well It's not going to be over if you're stage four until you decide for it to be over or the medicine stops working. Basically on the medicine for as long as you live. You know, of course, I'm not on the medicine anymore because I decided to just let nature take its course through hospice. Other people will say, oh, you look great. And the cancer patient, well, they, my response is, thank you. But a lot of other people are offended because they feel so miserable. It's all they can do to get up in the morning and drag themselves to work because they need the insurance to pay for the expensive chemotherapy treatments. You know, they put some makeup on and it makes them look great on the outside, but they feel like crap on the inside and when somebody says, hey, you look great, it makes a lot of cancer patients feel like, well, gee, if I looked sick, you might actually pay more attention to me. But because I look great, you think I'm healthy. And, and that offends them, you know. Like I said, it doesn't offend me. I just say thank you because I'm happy if somebody tells me I look great. Another thing people say is, oh, you know what? You'll get through this. I had cancer and I overcame it. Um, my response is, I am so glad that you overcame your cancer. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen for me. They mean well. They want to give me that reassurance or that hope that a miracle could happen and that I could be one of the rare people that get cured from cancer. And that can happen in some cases, but once you get diagnosed at stage 4, the cancer's always going to be there. It just some people live longer. There have been people that live 10, 12, 15 years in stage 4. It just depends on your type of cancer. Like, for example, I have the breast cancer gene, the BRCA2, and some people have it, some people don't, and that's going to affect what medication you take and how responsive. There are other gene- genetic mutations that can affect how responsive you are to the medications. So there's a long, you know, what works for one person may not necessarily work for another. But people get offended by that because they think that somebody else is trying to diminish the fact that they have stage four. And I think that's all part of the grieving process. I think that when you get offended by that, maybe you're still in the, maybe you're in the denial stage or something, or... I don't know the, the all the stages of grief, but, you know, it just depends on the cancer patient themselves, how they receive somebody's comment. To me, I just, you know, I don't let it get anything get to me. Some people will come up to me and say, you know what? If you drink alkaline water, your cancer will be cured. You know, if you eat a lemon diet, your cancer will be cured. If you drink this certain type of tea, your cancer will be cured. Well, I just say thank you. I'll take that into consideration, knowing that if it were that easy, there would be hardly anybody with cancer.
0: Yeah, I know even just sharing, my sister-in-law has terminal cancer or my sister-in-law has gone into hospice people will say things like, oh, well, did she try this? And she did she try that? And I know they're well-meaning, but sometimes I just step back and say, you know, that's her decision. And it's not my decision to share how to treat your cancer. It's not my place to say anything. That's your decision. If you want my thoughts or anything, I could share it. But I think we're all our own expert in our bodies and in our care and it's just not easy decisions to navigate and what works well for one person, like you said, doesn't for another. And I think it's important to be mindful that unsolicited advice, I guess is what I wanna say. You know, reading that person and seeing if they want those options or not. And I just wanna
1: add one thing. That I think attitudes like that are, you know, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? I know that was one of the things that made me. I mean, I even heard it in church. That was one of the things that made me reluctant to go into hospice because I felt like if I, because I was told, well, God will take you when He's ready. Well, yeah, I believe that completely. But I also know that. Sometimes, like for example, when I talked to my doctors in the hospital this last time, to the oncologist, the oncologist told me flat out, yes, there are other treatments that we can give you. However, because of the damage that has already occurred in my body, I would not be able to handle those treatments. I wouldn't be strong enough. There's a time when you realize that and accept that you have done everything you can to fight the cancer. And God understands, you know, that you get sometimes people will bring up that, you know, well, God won't give you anything more than you can handle through him. I believe that God has been by my side and my faith has brought me through all of this. But I know also that the Bible says that he gives rest for the weary. And I'm weary. (laughs) I've gone through all these treatments, all these blood transfusions. It's because of my anemia that I fell backwards and hit my head. I could have cracked my skull. It's because of my anemia that I broke my tibia and my fibula. It's because of my anemia that the sternum cracked. Enough is enough. And at some point, you have to do what you feel is best for yourself and when the medications aren't working anymore that's the time to consider hospice and everybody's going to have a different point where they're going to come to that realization whatever your breaking point is that's going to be when you'll realize when the right time is but other people shouldn't tell you you made the wrong decision because you know your body better than anybody
0: yeah i agree i think there is this point of listening to our body and listening to our spirit and making peace and i'm curious honestly that's the best word i'm just i'm curious if you don't mind sharing what is it like to make that decision to come to that peace is that Because I know when I got here to visit you, you, you told me, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm ready. And so how does one make that decision?
1: It's a very hard decision to make. And, of course, I would never make a decision without discussing it with my family and my husband. My family, I think, is actually relieved to some point because as my cancer progresses, this way they don't have to make the decision. I've already made it for them. You know, and I talked with them extensively about this. And they said, My daughters, they both said, Mom, we want what's best for you. We want what you want. And we're here for you. Whatever you decide. And my husband said, too, you know, I'm here for you, whatever you decide. It needs to be your decision. It needs to be what's going to make you comfortable. You've earned that right to be comfortable. And so, knowing that my family was okay with it, and I know in my faith god help me make this decision and i just think that if i were to prolong this and try some other treatments where my body might not be able to handle it all that well i think of my granddaughter do i want her to see me physically deteriorate to the point where I can't even move because I'm so thin and frail and sick from all the chemotherapy or I'm in the hospital more than just a week every month. That's no quality of life, and it's certainly not good for her to have to see that. And so I feel... I kind of feel like this was meant to be. My grandmother died when she was 55. Maybe I was five years old when she died in 1971. So, yeah. So when she was 55, I lost my grandmother at age five. I'm 55 right now. My granddaughter's going to be turning four in May. And I kind of feel like I'm going to be like my grandmother. And I'm fortunate enough to know that even though I can't do a lot of activities that a lot of healthy people can do, my granddaughter loves to sit in my hospital bed. And watch her little videos on my phone. Or watch her cartoons on the TV. And we just have quality time like that. I read stories to her. I watch her play with her dolls. And she loves that. She'll remember me. She'll remember those times. And I know that when she grows up. She's going to agree. That. It was good that Nana made that decision. It was good that Nana made a decision that was right for her. And it's really hard to say. Each person's going to feel differently about it. But I can already feel my body. I'm getting more and more tired. A heavy tired that I feel like somebody laid a pile of bricks on my body. And I just can't get up. You know, being on hospice is not glamorous. Somebody helps me shower. (laughs) So dignity and privacy go away, kind of. Then, of course, you have wonderful incontinence, which goes along with that. And have to keep the bathroom door open because everybody needs to make sure that I don't fall while I'm in the bathroom. But I I knew all that going into hospice, and I did need the help. And I'm glad I made that decision.
0: Thank you for sharing so openly, because I think these stories are what can help the sharing of our stories. And so before we close this out, my love, is there anything that you just want the listeners to know I would say that whether you're spiritual or not,
1: you know, and you can be spiritual without believing in God, whatever your faith is, be strong in your faith. Try to get a good support network. You know, if you don't have family around to help you, there's always, like, hospice. There's the American Cancer Society, I believe gives rides to cancer patients to their medical appointments. They stopped doing it a while for because of COVID, but I think that they've probably already resumed that. There are a lot of cancer support groups on Facebook, on Twitter, where you can talk to other people in your exact same situation. You know, I was on a laparib, my chemotherapy medicine. It was a pill. There was a group for people that were on a laparib. So you can read up on all the symptoms and the side effects and everything that people in those groups are having and ask questions. Above all, try to keep your sense of humor. Try to smile. I know it's not easy, but I know it's helped me deal with it. A little bit better. That whenever I'm going through something, like when I first broke my leg and I couldn't bathe for two weeks, I uh, posted a picture of Pig Pen from the Charlie Brown cartoon in a cloud of dirt with a big smile on his face, and I said, "Today I get to shower." You know, just share with other people. You can share everything. Like, you know, I shared about a picture of a woman laying in her bed and looking up at the ceiling and saying, oh, no, I have to pee again. And, you know, if anybody with a cast or a split knows, that is not the easiest thing to do when you can hardly move to get up and go pee. But just try to share your experiences and then have a little fun with it, and I know that Having cancer isn't funny. I'm not saying that. It's not a joke. I'm not saying that either. But if you can find a little sense of humor in what you're going through to share with others, maybe somebody else won't be as scared about
0: having cancer because you shared. That's one of the things that I admire most about you is just... How resilient you are, and how you always look for the good and everything. Your spirit throughout this journey has just been remarkable and inspirational. It truly is. And I
1: just want to share that Michelle may be my sister in law, but she's more than my sister in law, she's my sister. We were born on the exact same month, day, and year. So my husband could never forget my birthday. He has no reason.
0: I love you and thank you. I'm very grateful. And thank you all for listening. I hope that you found this conversation helpful to have a perspective from someone going through the process of dying versus being the one that is surviving the grief of losing someone you love. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode helpful and it provided you some comfort or insights. For a list of bereavement resources or to connect with me for grief support, please visit my website at birtheservices.com backslash loss-support. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at Support. If you would like to help to support me in this work to hold space for grieving families, One of the simplest and best ways is to please follow, rate, review, and share, and share again this podcast. And please be kind, compassionate, and patient with yourself as you walk this journey of grief, remembrance, and renewed hope. Remember, there is no right way to grieve the loss of your baby or your loved one.